difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm here again with... Scott Tobias. And Tasha Robinson. Genevieve Kosky was last spotted at transporting some paintings to a warehouse somewhere in California. We hope she will return in the next episode. In our last episode, we discussed Roger Corman's A Bucket of Blood, a satirical horror film set in the beatnik-infested coffee shops of late 50s California. This time we'll be discussing the latest film from Nightcrawler writer-director Dan Gilroy, the Netflix-released Velvet Buzzsaw. That title's worth unpacking a bit. It's the name of the punk band that once counted Redora Hayes, played by Renee Rousseau, as a member. That was decades ago, however. Now she works as a successful dealer in high art, with the buzzsaw tattoo on her neck, the only reminder of those days, and her DIY, screw-the-world approach to art. But the thing about tattoos is they stick around, and the thing about art, the film argues, is that it's always dangerous, no matter how much it gets wrapped up in the mercurial movements of the marketplace. No matter how much you dress it up in velvet, art can still cut. That's the controlling idea at the center of a sprawling movie that only reveals itself as a horror film pretty deep into its running time, after introducing characters like a fussy but principled critic played by Jake Gyllenhaal, an artist struggling to create while sober played by John Malkovich, and a curator trying to make a professional transition, played by Tony Collette. Also in the mix, Redor's assistant Josephina, played by Zoe Ashton, who discovers both the corpse of her neighbor and a cache of disturbing paintings in his apartment. Ignoring his wishes, they be destroyed. She uses them to advance professionally. But when they become an art world sensation, those who acquire and appreciate them start turning up dead. We'll be back after the break to talk about it. Found something. Who did these? They're mesmeric. A uh, guy upstairs, he died. And you just took them? He had no family or friends. I can make you rich. It's brilliant. Demand has people ready to kill. Have you ever heard of an artist named Ventral Deeds? No, not in our records, and we have everyone. The artist used blood to create the reddish blocks. You ever notice anything about this painting? Look at it long enough. It moves. As I research these, I'm starting to think there's a disgust for the world of money. We spent decades in a psychiatric hospital for the criminally insane. There is some sort of power. Some spirit connected to his art. <gasps> Something truly goddamn strange is going on! Okay, just generally speaking, what did you think of Velvet Buzzsaw? Boo. I'm going I'm to go with boo. Completely boo. Just complete boo. No, not completely boo. So this movie, when it started out, played for me like an art world version of of Robert Altman. Um, to some degree, I kept thinking of Ready to Wear, mm-hmm. although that film was fairly dire. And this one's so much livelier. For me, the movie 
almost never gets better than that long opening sequence where you're introducing all of these characters and you're trying to suss out their relationships to each other and you're you're learning them kind of through the reactions that Jake Gyllenhaal has to them. You know, there's the woman that he's attracted to and that he cares about. There are the hangers-on that he's repelled by. There's the person that he kisses up to and the person that he doesn't. And just as each one of these people kind of drifts into his orbit, you see him through their eyes, you see them through his eyes, and it's all so fascinating and big and colorful. And then midway through the film, Gilroy just kind of burns it all down in a way that to me is so uninteresting. Mm. Uh, To me, just like narrative inevitability in horror films is just like the death of horror. As soon as it becomes clear that we're basically going to see all of these people just be bumped off one by one in big, colorful, supernatural ways that there's no getting around whatsoever, it just completely stopped being interesting for me. And when I reviewed this for The Verge, I saw it at Sundance, I compared it to like building a big elaborate castle and then just burning it down. And there's something to be said for butchering your own baby or not butchering your own baby, depending on which way you want to take the metaphor. Metaphor. Very, very <laughs> metaphorically. Say, I'm going to say there's nothing to be said. For that. That's terrible. Well, you, you can go. You can go talk to Alan more about it. Oh my gosh. But this world is so much more interesting, bef- to, to me at least, before magical hand wavy Hubaju comes along. I mean. At Sundance, I heard a lot of people comparing it to Final Destination movies, not because it has these super elaborate, uh, you know, gimcrack ways of people dying, but because it has that sort of dreary inevitability of here are a bunch of fairly loathsome people and here they all are like inevitably dying in ridiculous ways. And all you're really supposed to care about is the form of those deaths. But the world was so much more interesting before all that started happening. We should mention also that while most of it's set in Southern California, the opening is at Art Basel, the uh, annual Miami art gathering thing, marketplace, whatever they call it. Uh, not my world. So I'm, I'm with you, Tasha, where the opening is the most interesting part. Um, and also the part of the way it's shot. Robert Ellswood is a cinematographer. He just shot uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's early films and a bunch of other stuff, too. And it, you know, these characters are interesting. You get to know them, and he kind of sets out their relationships. I think Jake Gyllenhaal's character is compelling and complex, and we'll get into that a, a little bit more. And then once the horror elements take over, I, there is kind of an inevitability to it. I don't think it's particularly well-staged as a horror film either, yeah. or particularly sure-footed as to what the genre wants or needs or where it needs to go with that. And I don't know that you know we necessarily get a case for why these paintings and this paint this painter is sort of the being used to illustrate the the danger of art and and so on. i think it kind of falls apart but i think it's a noble it's a noble effort it's a really interesting effort and and uh, i'm gonna throw out also that that it's the kind of film that failings and all you know netflix has kind of opened up a marketplace for it in a, in a way we wouldn't necessarily have seen this if, if it weren't for the netflix uh being an outlet for this i mean this. No, what nightcrawler wasn't in a, i mean this is so comparable to nightcrawler it is, but, well nightcrawler's <sighs> better yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's, better, it's, it's better but i mean this is the same is this the same gilroyd and in, in Hall? sure you know, middle low budget you know, a dark, but I think that's easier to sell as a genre film than than this is. I also think I just I, yeah. Nightcrawler is so much more hard hitting about no, it's, its better. messaging. It's, it's a better, it's a better movie. But I'm, I'm just not. Saying, I'm not I'm just, just saying, saying that it's it's better made. I'm saying that it just has such a stronger conceit about what it's trying to do, and it brings it across so much more clearly and in such a daring way. I mean that that movie was a little bit of an art house darling, just because you know people were like, I I haven't experienced something like this before. 
this you can't say that about Velvet Buzzsaw. You've experienced this before. You've just experienced it as two different movies that were better that in this case kind of got cut in half and smushed together with some sloppy paste in the middle. But they both have really strong, dark log lines. I mean, if you just talk about Velvet Buzzsaw being a movie about this art that's been left behind that wreaks all sorts of havoc on the people who uh, acquire it and view it. I mean, it's, there's something kind of interesting about that idea. Um, but I think I agree with both of you in terms of I, I just don't think Gilroy is that strong a filmmaker when it comes to, to horror I mean there's mm-hmm. so, you know it's one thing if it's perfunctory in that final destination way and it has this boring inevitability but it becomes boring because because he hasn't really thought of ways to make it exciting it's not really mm-hmm. what he does well I think he's much more at home uh, in the nightcrawlery aspects of the film that that we get in the first half, where we're we're just getting much more of a a, a dark portrait of the art world and how it operates and how and how um, he's clearly done his homework. And, right? I mean, there's I learned yeah. things about the, about the world of art that I. But our dealers and critics and this incestuous kind of almost fraudulent relationship that they have. Uh, to each other and the arbitrary value that gets assigned one you know group of art over over another. I mean, all of that works pretty well. But I think just generally, it's very hard to sustain a satire or make any satire, but sustain a satire of the art world. I think of like Terry Zweigoff's Ghost World versus Terry Zweigoff's Art School Confidential. I mean, Ghost World has that nice, hilarious bit with Ileana Douglas as the summer school art teacher. And it's just, but then when he moved to Art School Confidential, which is a film I like and defend, it still feels like it's stretched way, way too thin because taking shots at the art world, particularly modern art, it's a little too easy. It might be too watch, easy. Watch, watch this, Sasha. The two things I really like most about this film is it premiered on Netflix and it was shot on digital, which is oh, like, both yeah. I feel like are the future. Both are great. Oh, okay, is it shot on the phone Sasha. too? I, love, I like I like when they're on phones. All right, go ahead, Sasha. Uh, I... This is going to take you by surprise, Scott, but I disagree mm-hmm. with you there. Oh, okay. Which uh, part? Oh, all you know, it? all of it. All oh of it. You just your opinion. I was like agreeing like with a but How could you disagree? <laughs> I was like, like agreeing a good chunk of what you said. No, I'm I'm kidding. I, I disagree that it would have necessarily been stretched thin. I think that these are potentially rich characters in a, a complicated, interesting world. And I think there are a couple of different directions that he could have taken it that would have been very different and both potentially fruitful. Some of the beginning reminded me of Robert Altman and it, it could have just been like a complicated ongoing scene study where we get to see how all of these different characters, these different, I think, interesting and well-established characters play out around this, you know, new gold rush of this valuable art. I also was sometimes reminded of Christopher Guest's scene movies, uh, particularly Waiting for Guffman and A Mighty Wind. And he could have kept it like light and just like done it as a full on parody, kind of telling a small story, but but making fun of these people in different ways, not to jump too far ahead. uh, But, you know, Bucket of Blood has a whole bunch of different complicated characters that we don't get too deeply into, but that are mostly treated very lightly. And this movie could have played that out in that direction just i'm in a place of so many different things could have potentially been done with this and all of them would have been more interesting than eh, and then everybody dies in elaborate <laughs> ways involving a lot of cgi i agree with that though though I, I mean when you really when you're starting this movie with a character named morph vandewalt <laughs> i mean you're not necessarily 
taking the lightest possible hand to any aspect of it, right? I mean, so I think I was at least pleasantly surprised that as much of a cartoon as Hall's character was, and as, of course, sensitive as all of us are to him being a critic and, and, and that the depiction of critics on screen. I mean, I, I was I the best part of the film is that character. I think it's very, I think he's got a kind of interesting amount of, he's got a lot, some integrity, he's got some vulnerability, he certainly has lots of pretension. There's a line of his that's, you know, a very good laugh line in the film that really hit me, which is when he, he said that, talked about critics, uh, uh, further the realm they analyze. <laughs> like, yeah, you finally you get it. Finally, a film that gets it. <laughs> that's that's what we do, right? We further the realm we analyze. So, so that part of the film, that character was like the one character that consistently resonated with me throughout the movie and surprised me in his motives because I don't think um, when you're talking about uh, um, this incestuous world and people. Who, leading on reviews to sell paintings for large sums of money, um, you think that Jalen Hall is, is completely sold out and is a part of that world when he really isn't. And that's that's interesting to me. He's uh, though, though, he is, though he's not completely, though he's also vulnerable to this affair that he has with Josefina where he kneecaps the show, uh, you know, an mm-hmm. ex-lover of hers for a show that he actually likes. Yeah, but he has principles, but he doesn't always realize, doesn't seem to realize he's in violation of them most of the time and just being so close to Rene Russo's character alone uh you know i you know there's this assumption that he's giving her inside tips or tilting the reviews and he's not but also Mm -hmm. he's way too close to her to not know he's not being influenced i I don't know i think there's it's one of the more complex portraits of a of a critic i've seen but most that's almost by default (laughs) you know that they they, they so rarely are uh um you know who's the most complex it's probably ratatouille right yeah I think that's is that the best? Is that the best critic? It's it, best and most complex are are very okay. Most, different com- things. most complex. Oh gosh, I don't know. I mean, uh, critics in films tend to be unsympathetic. Not just unsympathetic, but jokes. I mean, I'm thinking about like Lady in the Water or all about Eve or Birdman, mm. like all of these films that basically just uh, set critics up as like an easy an easy thing to knock over. Which I don't I don't have any problem with. You know, it's. <laughs> We we hurt them. We hurt we hurt the artists in their little hearts, and uh, it's within well within their rights to set us up as uh, as cheap cartoon figures to get eaten by horrible monsters. But that said, yeah, this may be the most complicated portrait of a critic because I do think that some of the things that he says, like you know, we we further the realm that we analyze. I do think that that's a laugh line. Oh, I think of course. That, uh, absolutely. I think but I, but were... I identify with that laugh line. It, it, <laughs> it, it, hits, it hits me. In a, it is... you, you, so do you, you just, it, but... Do you yes. identify with it as like something that you believe, or do you identify with it as something that he believes? It's something that I, in my most pretentious moment, I, <laughs> I, 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 I believe. Yeah, so about critics furthering the realm, and by I think by our participation in in uh, enriching the conversation, that there is some kind of that we have a that we're stakeholders, that we have a place in shaping in shaping art. I would say that. How do you sleep if you don't think that? that is, that's true, but it's hard to saying it out. Saying it out of a pile of Marvel money. <laughs> that's right. Surrounded by many beautiful women. You don't talk about which the Marvel. Which is very confusing Again. for me. Loud part, uh, quiet part, loud on that, on that too. You don't talk about the Marvel money, Tasha. No, not the, not the Marvel money. Uh, you know, if DC would just pony up some money, yeah, that'd be we could start reviewing those movies positively, and like uh, the the whole world would just balance yeah, out. Cut, cut this out, whoever edits this. <laughs>
<laughs> so I do think I I don't know that I see Morph as nearly as sympathetic as you do. Like I I think he's kind of a, a hollow balloon, and I feel like the fact that we're kind of part of our introduction to him is his passion for Josephina, his like authentic empathy for her, his excitement about her, you know, being free of her cheating boyfriend and being free for him is immediately complicated by the fact that he is a living lover that he's just like shoo shoo out the door uh the second she's available and i i feel like that's the way that all of that is handled kind of gives us this view into him as a very shallow person who wants what he wants and thinks that what he wants is inherently more important than what anybody else wants i i don't see him as a sympathetic character I see him as a very interesting one. I mean, I mean, he's more sympathetic than anybody else. I mean, there's a bunch. Of, this is a bunch of, this is their whole gallery of terrible people in this movie. Who's, who's, who's like more sympathetic than he is? Maybe, maybe the is it Coco? I think that the, like she's a little bit more sympathetic because she's been kind of kicked around from one place to another. She's may may, may have to move back to Michigan. A horror of horrors. Yeah. She's also not a character. She's a narrative. No, but I'm not, but I'm, I'm, I'm Dick's going, character doesn't I'm going seem that so far yeah. down the cast list because I think I think at the top nobody is sympathetic right i mean i sympathize with josephina somewhat you know both dealing with her scummy boyfriend and with her desire to get ahead given that redora is never going to give her any uh any means to do that but at the same time she is kind of at the heart of the movie's like worst and least ethically defensible position although that in and of itself is really worth discussion i feel like the artist vetral d's is the the artist who dies and leaves behind this this phenomenal body of work is probably heavily based in henry darger um Mm -hmm. who was you know famously died in his apartment leaving behind hundreds of paintings and something like fifteen thousand pages of handwritten manuscript which has all been you know recovered and analyzed and much of it's been published after his death I really think that this film raises some interesting questions about who owns art. You know, does Vettel Dees have the right to tell the world to burn his paintings when his paintings demonstrably have such emotional effect on people? Like, does he have the right to claim, legally, of course, he has the right to claim uh, that, that people should do whatever he wants with his possessions after his death. Like, that's a fundamental tenet of law is that you get to say who does what with your your possessions but like ethically morally artistically does he have the right to demand after he's gone that these things be destroyed i think that the film raises that question and doesn't do anything interesting Mm. with it uh but i would that's something that i would love to see this film delve a little further into either through these characters or through a narrative that just doesn't doesn't just say yep he has the right and he's gonna kill anybody who gets in his way brief aside i thought of drugger too the, the actual paintings themselves reminded me of this work by this artist named Bert Schonberg to bring it full circle, who did paintings for Roger Corman for his uh, oh, nice. Edgar Allan Poe uh, films. Right. Uh, uh, but the paintings are odd. It's always difficult to say, here is you know, here's the most beautiful poem in the world for this fictional creation. And, and then if it's not the most beautiful poem in the world, you're going to you know, have viewers scratching their head. And I think with these paintings, too, they're, they're not quite as affecting or strange or as entrancing as, as everyone around them 
seems to think they are. I actually found some of the other artwork in the film more interesting too, which was, I think we'll get too sidetracked if we get into that. But I did really love the set piece that was basically, obviously supposed to be like the artist's childhood home down to the TV that, you know, what was what we were watching on TV and everything too. But, oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. What did you think of Hobo Man? I thought Hobo Man was cool too, you know. You wouldn't have put, you wouldn't have put him in cold storage? No, no. I, and in some ways I think the D's paintings were the least compelling artwork we encounter in this film i think that's fine though because i think the way we see everybody respond to them can be taken as an indication of the supernatural hoobajoob going on in this movie and in a way if they were more beautiful or disturbing or compelling you'd feel less of that kind of supernatural vibe the fact that some of these paintings are maybe a little banal and that people still react to them like you know they've been struck by uh, the hammer of lightning from from the gods gives it an an interesting effect i think here's the difference to me it's definitely a bugaboo of mine when you have movies that say here's this brilliant work by an artist and then then you see it it's called i call it mr holland's opus syndrome (laughs) uh where it's like where it's like i call it i call it rent syndrome myself okay well in any case mr i'm gonna stick with mr holland's opus right because in that movie Here's a guy who gives up this brilliant career to teach a bunch of high school students, and then finally they get to the end, and you get this, this original composition, and it's god awful, right? <laughs> Terrible. It's a, it's a, and there's so many examples of that of just like bad poetry, bad dancing, bad movie making, bad whatever that's supposed to be brilliant. However, in Velvet Buzzsaw, it's part of the fabric of the film that the value of art is something that is arbitrarily assigned. And Hobo Man is jettisoned in favor of you know, Vetral D's work and there's no indication to us, it's not obvious to us as as viewers that one is better than the other. In fact, we would probably say that Hobo Man is more impressive than than anything we see uh, come from Vetral D's. But because this becomes this mystique and story attached to this dead guy's work, because it becomes becomes a story, because it becomes a thing, it has value. Mm-hmm. Even even though it's not that obvious that it does, it fits within the, the context of the film that Vettelzi's art be whatever it is. It doesn't really have to be all that striking, to my mind. But the thing is, you know, these are paintings made with blood that are somehow inhabited by the essence of their ghostly, monstrous creator, blah blah blah. So, which complicates it. Like well, they're hazy. They're, they look kind of hazy. But right? what you're what you're talking about is a potentially very interesting sort of narrative thing, where specifically the story is what gives them value. The contextualization, the crafting of this narrative around them uh, is what gives them value. And then people seeking them is what gives them value. People coveting them is what gives them value. But the film has that going on in kind of simultaneous parallel with, oh, it's magic. And Mm. I, I just find, again, I find the, oh, it's magic part just so much less interesting. I don't think it just comes down to like it's the narrative, it's the craft, because before that craft exists, everybody who lays eyes on them gets all goppy, mm-hmm. you know, morphs just fundamental emotional reaction to them is so powerful. David Diggs, who seems like the most principled uh, person in the film to the point where he he does actually abandon this whole messy art world at the end and go back to his collective, like has a, a profound emotional reaction to them that yeah. is not explained like by rarity or narrative. I, I felt he was kind of misused and not really 
as much of a presence as you'd hope for an actor of that caliber. But that moment when he is just sitting there looking at this painting that is affecting him and that is moving in some way, like literally moving, that was a really nice little moment, like late in the film, mm-hmm. which was not full of nice moments. And the little connection that he has with John Malkovich as as peers, where they're both looking at the painting together and just sort of taking it in. Like the fact that the same work can have the same effect on this you know, drunken, cynical, like angry person who's kind of outside of his own art mm-hmm. uh, and this young up-and-comer who's who's very into his own art and is about to break big. Uh, I, I, It just, it's kind of a beautiful moment. I love Malkovich in this. I mean, it's the type of role that he plays a lot, but I really, I he plays it to perfection every time as uh, this cantankerous, the artist. Well, he's an artist in this one, but, it, but I've seen that, like I said, the drunken Malkovich type I've seen many times but uh, I, I, was, I was happy to see him here. And he kind of disappears from the film until the final shot of him drawing on the beach which is a nice, a nice, nice image. Yeah uh, I was going to ask speaking of Malkovich what you guys thought of that. I I have heard from a lot of people who thought it was dumb or, or pointless or empty but to me that was one of the more poignant moments of the film. Yeah kind of a mandala thing where it's, you know, it's art for truly art for art's sake because it's not going to last and not going to get sold and it has no market value it's just just there to do it. And it's, I mean, one of the few positive things Rodora does in the film is send him away and, and tell him to stay away until he can make art for himself again. And that you see that outside of like all of the cynical manipulation and all of this like brokerage and, and money chasing, like he has reached that point all on his own. And the fact that we see that from above, that we're not like down there, like watching his face and hearing swelling music. And it's not a big sentimental thing. It's just this literally loopy moment that he's having. I I just really enjoy that moment. All right. We'll end on a positive note and and, uh, we'll take a quick break and we're trying to talk about connections between Velvet Buzzsaw and Roger Corman's A Bucket of Blood. Ricky has an exhibition Friday. He's a hack. A bearded downtown poser. He hasn't had, like, an original idea in his whole life. On top of which, he steals from everyone. But you know that, right? I'm very familiar with his work. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I mean, let's start with the obvious thing here, or the depictions of art and attitudes toward art. Are they more alike or different? I think they're pretty alike. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think they, they both kind of feature people flocking toward art the second they think it might be popular, the second they think it might have cachet, the second they think it might be hip to be on top of this art. Suddenly they also want to be on top of this art. And there is kind of a sense in both cases that to some degree it is really all about how much somebody will pay you for that art. Like that's, there's the value of the work and then there's the value of what someone will pay you for the work. And both of those things are equated in both of these movies. Oh, and and the excitement, interesting ways. the excitement that Dick Miller's character feels over selling his work for 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, like he's a real, that that's what makes him a real artist. Like he asks the question when he gives them the dead cat sculpture, if he's a, if he's a real artist, but I think that's the moment that it really becomes clear that this is, that he's, he's made this, he's ascended uh, when he gets his 50 bucks. One interesting thing they have in common too is that is, 
having this really is they both have this really strong arbiter of taste uh in in velvet buzzsaw it'd be redora and then it'd be maxwell in uh, bucket of blood these very powerful figures who are at the center of this scene um who get to be out front declaring what it is that people should be seeing what sh- what it is that people should find important they're the ones who who are bestowing value on that on these works yeah i mean i think the tension in both is the same and it's pretty simple it's like you know art is this wonderful immortal thing i i understand it, it is you know life is but a, a hobo bummer or anyway uh, <laughs> but uh graham crackers and all that but you know, at the same time, in the world we live in, the value also comes from what you get paid for it and what what you pay for it, and and that's in its own way just just uh, you know it's gauche to even talk about that kind of thing. But it's also the thing that you're not supposed to talk about that's also kind of at the heart of it as well. And you know, I think that they're both are, in their own ways are, are quite smart about that because I, I do think that the best part of Velvet Buzzsaw is the the navigation of of that world of high art and and the money that comes with it. Though that is that's a kind of a difference though between the two films too is is money and that I, and that mm-hmm. I don't think that Dick Miller in Bucket of Blood really has thought so far ahead to the point where art can enrich him. He just wants to be not well, a busboy anymore. He wants anymore. the legitimacy of He the wants the legitimacy, yeah. and, and, but for the characters in Velvet Buzzsaw, money is everything. I mean, they chase it very passionately, and the, the art the art itself is, is just a vehicle to get them the or, riches that they have coming to them. Or they confuse the feeling of artistic accomplishment with monetary validation like the, the, the two feelings have gotten so tangled up for them if you want to be a little more charitable than just saying they're after money it's yeah. also I, I mean it's important that velvet buzzsaw spends actually very little time with its artist characters like we know what's going on with malkovich and and Diggs characters but we don't spend a lot of time getting to know them compared to the amount of time we spend on the brokers and the sellers and the gallery owners and the critic all of these people who's livelihoods come not from art from but from like you know para art relationships from from buying and selling and, and broking and driving up the value you're so close to going into the makers and takers speech here <laughs> <laughs> as we tilt further to a right-wing I, podcast I, I need to i need to not do that because uh, it will inevitably come out in a beat poetry voice again <laughs> yeah. and then we're back at the top of the podcast uh. <laughs> I think another similarity is that I don't think Walter's uh, art is all that impressive either. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's something to the kind of porlessness of that dead cat with a knife in it, like balanced <laughs> up in that weird way on its paws, which every time they did that, I was like, no, no, it's meant to lie on its side. It's It's even got a flat side for lying on. No wonder the damn thing tips over. But when people start seeing his his later statues with their weird distorted gross inhuman faces and they all react exactly like uh the characters in velvet buzzsaw reacted to these as art with just rapturous like oh so so impressive so beautiful it is kind of the same thing you know that that sense of like what what are they seeing that i'm not seeing and there's a weird little like fomo feeling there there's there's a weird little emperor's uh, new clothes feeling there of what what are they appreciating in the art that i'm not seeing in the art all the all that is true and and weirdly uh, the case in like velvet buzzsaw where we can see 
the extraordinary amount of effort that went into a piece again, going back to Hobo Man. Uh, uh, <laughs> do you, do you who, just who, want Hobo Man for your home? Be, You're very you taken he's, he's a this is a robot that's been constructed here. This is this took a lot of sheer technical know-how to produce this work of art. This is not so it's like a spinoff waiting to happen. But yeah. He, yeah, he needs to get on an omnibus and go like represent artists and, and it's art. Not some weird sphere. Anyway, you can do a sphere, right, Keith? Mm, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of like the sphere. I mostly I like the the comforting humming noise it makes. Yeah, unless you put your arm in there. I don't. I don't. I don't have any need to have, put my arm have in whatever that thing. weird experience you're supposed to have. I think it's kind of fun that they don't. Uh, you know, apart from obviously horrible murder, uh, and I <laughs> yeah. think at one point you get a shot implying that there's fur down one of the holes. Like for the most part, you don't really get to find out what that experience is, and uh, and I I think that's kind of fun that they leave that up to the yeah. imagination. Uh, the the sphere also I think enables one of Velvet Buzzsaw's no pun intended maybe most cutting scenes which is uh, you know after uh, Gretchen Tony Collette gets her arm ripped off by it (laughs) uh, the whole business with everybody thinking her corpse and the blood around it is art and people interacting with it as art like Mm. the you you want a statement about art and especially about modern art that's a nightcrawler worthy cruelty that's also very funny in a dark way yeah it almost feels like an escalation of that sort of thing could have been a better final oh, act for this I, for yeah this movie. and i just also think like i don't think that that movie the square is like the greatest film ever made but like as a picture of that type of modern art in the, the highly highly conceptual uh, that film is so much smarter about mm. that than yeah, I, like that. Buzzsaw. I do like that movie yeah violence let's talk about violence yeah I love uh, violence. Let's, let's, let's talk about deserving versus undeserving victims it feels like in there are it's tough to say that there are any undeserving victims in either film, but I feel like we're supposed to take a certain amount of pleasure with all the various ways characters are off in Velvet Buzzsaw. Is that fair to say? I'm just as just are you from, sad just from... when any of the characters uh, disappears from the film? Hmm. Sad. No, I mean, because they created he's created such a gallery of unlikable people that mm-hmm. I don't really, I don't, I wasn't sad that they came to bad ends. I, I just wasn't that um, invested, which I think is a tied problem. to that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was sad when Morph died, not because I felt for him or sympathized with him or necessarily needed to see his character escape, but because Gyllenhaal is just one of the big lights of the movie. Yeah. And like, there's there's a point where you can see those lights going out. And as they do, you know, the story is getting smaller and smaller and less and less interesting. And I wanted I wanted his commentary on it. I wanted his observations on it, like as a very vocal, verbal character with these great, ridiculous turns of phrase and this this immense pretension that he was carrying around. Whatever observation he had on how it was all going down just stood to be a lot more interesting than, you know, like watching his corpse molder, possibly covered in clay. So, yeah, I mean, I was sorry to see him die for just, experiential reasons or just as being like one of the other just being off like everybody else in his own final destination sequence especially after undergoing such a metamorphosis huh right metamorphosis sure morph the name, yeah. his name is morph damn it <laughs> all right well i didn't play but uh that i think is the one true multi-dimensional character in the film and so uh so to see him treated as haphazardly as everyone else uh, or is it the same as everyone else didn't really uh, work for me either we should talk about the audiences for these films i, I we talked about 
how there's a very particular audience for a bucket of blood. It's a B movie audience. They're going to come to this title to see a horror movie that with posters that promises, you know, horror and comedy. You know, I'm not sure it was if Netflix was always a destination for Velvet Buzzsaw. It feels like kind of the right destination for Velvet Buzzsaw in the sense that it doesn't it doesn't necessarily be a satisfying. Did they bank, didn't they bankroll it? Or did they? Did they? I don't think it was a pickup. No, I mean, I mean okay. they immediately put it on the service. Yeah, like, I mean, like right after something like. Before Sundance was over, I think. Right? Yeah, no, I, I, think, mm, I think it was February, like a week later. February first, right, close, close to it. Um, Were you there February first? Mm, Sundance is a blur for me. Are you okay. still at Sundance? Tasha? I might still be at Sundance. <laughs> you're stuck, you're stuck I there might for be a while. dreaming this podcast. Yeah, I did get stuck there because of the full polar vortex, and it is possible that I just never, never came back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not. I mean, it's a film that feels right for Netflix. That has like sort of a a quirky not quite easy to market to theaters the, the there's movies that can find a home there that wouldn't necessarily be the easiest sell in theaters and this feels like one of those in some ways do you does that seem like in a, in a way that's there's an audience first approach here in in, in the same way that there was in, in building films but from the title backwards for aip it's just you know the piece of content that people watch that weekend sure because it's, like, it's it's it will be the featured thing it's going to have um, a couple of big names of the cast sort of a grabby premise with a little with some promise of horror so you're going to get those people in i don't know if it's going to be a i think it was like a satisfying ex- experience for for folks but i mean i don't think what's interesting and frustrating about netflix is that is you rarely have like a word of mouth netflix hit i mean it's just going to drop and people are going to are going to watch it all at once and then it's just going to be banished to the land of wind and ghosts so I, I think there <laughs> but no, i think there is a word of mouth the, parado- the paradox the cloverfield paradox i mean that was yeah. an event for 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 literally that night and then that was the end of yeah, it yeah but that but was I, an utterly terrible it, movie it was it was, it was a completely forgettable film people, i mean are people going to like this thing I, 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 I just want to take issue with the whole word of mouth hit thing. I think a lot. Of, I think there is a lot of like word of mouth passed around. I've seen a lot of commentary on the Ted Bundy tapes. I feel like Russian Doll. I mean, these, are, these aren't theatrical films, but you know, um, Bandersnatch was always planned as an event. But uh, the the degree to which it kind of hit the blogosphere and like people were writing about it all okay. over the place and collaboratively dissecting it's it. It's not a rollout like a like an art house film is. It's like it's all you, you're getting it on the services it's going to be on, and there's not. It's not going to be like gain and open in different cities each week or something like that it's you're really going to strike hard right away right sure but i mean well the bird box also uh seems like it was a pretty big word of mouth hit and because you have the opportunity for that accessibility it seems like you have a lot more freedom for a word of mouth hit than you do with a film that opens in new york and la in one theater and then the next week like a little more in those cities and then maybe the next week it's in chicago and then you know uh, middle america might get it a month later like it's harder for something to maintain word of mouth over that period of time than it is i'm sure that there are people that put bird box or bandersnatch like on their watch list and still haven't gotten around to it mm-hmm. but they probably did that because you know that those titles were inserted in front of their eyes in like interacting with aunt tilly on facebook or like around the water cooler or whatever I, I i think word of mouth is still a thing but i think to get to your point I mean, this movie feels like a titillating, dumped thing in the same kind of way that AIP movies did as the the second half of a a double feature. I mean, this movie feels like a double feature. <laughs> this movie kind of, feels kind like, of does. Yeah, 
an art house yeah. film and then like a sloppy B movie and they're each an hour long. Yeah, I mean, I guess a larger point, the, a larger like sort of not that articulated or researched or well thought through what I'm kind of getting <laughs> to is that, you know, the more things change, I, I think there's sort of sense of you focus group this title, you make this movie. I think at the same time, I think Netflix has a sense of what will play and what won't play. And, you know, you hand us this weird art world satire for under a certain budget and with certain certain stars, we promote it a certain way. We're going to get the plays we need to get. Whatever those know. are, not that, we, not that we even know what those are. Well, that, that's a, the that's a, about it. it's a critical point though yeah. that we don't know what that is. Yeah. We, we, they can tell us whatever they want about how Velvet Buzzsaw is doing. We have absolutely no idea. I heard I heard forty billion people. That's watched. incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even more people than there are on the earth. That is a granted, lot of views. <laughs> granted, that's only 20 billion accounts. They just all watched it twice. <laughs> I do think, Keith, I would like to believe that that's true. I would like to believe that there are people at Netflix that are doing the Roger Corman, like as long as it comes in under this budget, uh, you can do whatever art you want kind of kind of model. But I don't think that model works anymore because mm. I don't think that it's clear at all how Netflix clicks and Netflix. I watched 25% of this versus 50% of this versus all of it 12 times. It It is unclear what the relationship of that is to a film's value for Netflix. Netflix's current model just really seems to be shovel as much money in the direction of name creators as possible in the hopes of like building up an original library before all of its library either gets taken away by other people's streaming services or just by being priced out of the market because there are so many streaming services competing for something like Friends. So I'm not seeing a strategy. I'd love to see a strategy. I'd love to believe that it's as thought through as Corman's was, but mm-hmm. I just, I'm not seeing it. Yeah, I think I th- I'd see very much a flood the zone type of mentality i mean maybe they have certain algorithmic notions uh, uh oh they do there's there's some right. terrific but, but, writing but think, out there but about in that. terms of like but in terms of just greenlighting a specific movie like velvet's buzzsaw and seeing it through and to its audience and however they respond to it i don't think it's that carefully crafted i think they have a much more macro view of things that you that you already described quite well it's not even the first thing that comes up when i type in velvet in the search engine on, on uh on netflix just because they just have a lot of stuff a lot of velvet yeah, a lot of velvet. But blue? No, blue velvet is not. Velvet Goldmine? Velvet, comma, blue? No. So, uh, the, okay, so the two really great movies with velvet in the title? Yeah, there's, there? there's a Spanish series called Velvet, and then there is, I would, yeah, a second Spanish series called Velvet Collection, uh, both of which come up. Uh, it's sandwiched between those two. Man, mm. Netflix and its $12 billion a year content spend is an amazing factory right now of just shoveling more dogs into the into the coal fire and hoping we make Newcastle. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's okay, really... We, we, we gotten so disgusting with these... You know, we, we, we were shoveling dogs... It's a Simpsons reference. Oh, right, and then you did the thing, you did the thing about uh, murdering... Babies, a, yeah. yeah, it's bad stuff. Butchering your own baby say, is, a, is specifically an Alan Moore quote. I'm going to say that it's a very, you know, it's a very precarious model. I'm not sure it can last, unless they branch into podcast funding in which Netflix... <laughs> oh boy, do we love Netflix. Oh, that would be great. So, yeah, we would all like I, to be sleeping atop a big pile of Netflix money instead of MCU money. 
<laughs> well, on that note, I, I feel like we're we're straying too far from the the, the world of art and 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 murder. We're doing um, it. But uh, but there's you know plenty to talk about. We hope to hear more uh, feedback from you, but we'll we'll put out that call before the end of the episode as well. That being said, if you want to see a bucket of blood, uh, there's uh, it's easy but also hard. Uh, it's fallen into public domain, so there's like a lot of crappy looking copies out there, like the ones on Primer that I, I tried. Or you could actually see the VHS tracking rolling through it, and it sounds bad. There's some cheap DVDs. There is a good DVD included on the box set, the Roger Corman collection, which will cost you $25, which is a con. Pro is, I think it's like eight or 10 movies, and there's some really good ones in there too, including The Trip, The Wild Angels. Wow. Um, yeah, a movie, a very strange movie that's not great, but I like called Gas. So anyway, if, if you are in a DVD acquiring mood, uh, I would recommend that. And, and quasi-legal, but, but there's a version on YouTube that looks pretty good that might be from a legitimate DVD, so you're not really supposed to be watching it on there. But, you know, don't blame us if you do. As for Velvet Buzzsaw, it's on Netflix. You can watch it on Netflix, the future of watching everything, anywhere, ever. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that we'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, what in the film world has been good for you lately? Well, uh, I'd like to say that maybe we did the wrong Netflix film because one week after Velvet Buzzsaw was premiered on Netflix, the new Steven Soderbergh film, High Flying Bird, also premiered on Netflix and is quite good i think it's one soderbergh one of soderbergh's best films in quite a while in fact this is a perversely in soderbergh's sort of highly wonky way this is a basketball movie without any real basketball being played i think we get a couple dribbles here and there uh we get a clip of a one-on-one game but just a little tease and the rest of it has to do with the behind the scenes machinations that are happening between the an agent who's played by andre holland from moonlight fantastic and other people in his arena and what's happening in the film is that the professional league we will just go ahead and call it the nba is on a lockout and and so they're trying to figure out uh the andre holland's character is trying to figure out how to end the lockout so he can he can get paid and his players can get paid etc but it's not really a in a league that is controlled by very rich white men uh, who can be fine no matter what. <laughs> Things are leveraged to their advantage. And so so the film is all about him trying to find a very clever way around that uh, and to find a very independent way to disrupt that. And so and that's such a key part of the movie, that theme of disruption and such a key part of Soderbergh's career and his methodology here. He shoots on an iPhone. There's something uh, very stolen about the film that he's trying to kind of project here and trying to figure out ways to legitimize the sport and legitimize these these players um, and get around this system um, that is that is so unfair uh, to the men who uh, really sell tickets who make the money for the league and so it's a it's an interesting critique of um professional sports i mean I, you know the nba is considered I, I, the healthiest league going right now but it's still quite quite barbed um and i think you could apply a lot of the lessons here to 
uh, other leagues too. Um, you you also get, I think, a really nice sense of what Soderbergh might have done with Moneyball. He was originally going to mm-hmm. direct Moneyball. I think we would have gotten a much different version of that. There's some there's some interesting uses of actual current players like Carl Anthony Towns and Donovan Mitchell and Reggie Jackson talking about their experiences coming into the league. So if you're into basketball, if you're into movies, if you're into independent films, it's highly, highly recommended. It's very entertaining. It's got a great ending too. Boy, you, you just kind of leave this movie on a high. Mm-hmm. I liked it a lot too. Yeah, it's it's, it's a good one. I mean, you liked it in spite of it being shot on an iPhone. I did, too. I did. I'm not, I'm not thrilled. I, I do wish that he had at least maybe shot it digitally uh, rather than I, on a phone. I just it bothers me the look of the the iPhone camera, especially when it's not necessary. It felt great watching uh, Tangerine mm-hmm. in that respect, and I can, and again, I can see the thematic importance of of maybe sh- of shooting on an iPhone and giving you that feel of uh, uh, giving you that disruption feel all the way down the line, but. Oof. And for what it's worth, I just thought it was shot digitally until I found that out later. I didn't know that going okay. into the movie, and, and I thought it has like that kind of tangerine thing where where you do you add some lenses, you do some interesting things, you make the the limitations of it part of the aesthetic. It's kind of Roger Corman esque in that way too. Yeah, um, yeah so and he's I, been doing that from the beginning in terms of his use of digital i think he doesn't mind highlighting the limitations of the format mm-hmm. um, which he did with uh, what was that what was that B- first one he did bubble no no before that <laughs> the really ugly one. Oh, full frontal yes uh, like he did with full frontal right he uh, full frontal was just one where it was just like early dv and it's mm-hmm. like okay this looks like crap let's just go ahead and just max out the crappy look and, make, sure. and play around with it and, uh, and so i think he's that's why people that's to, why everyone loves that movie they love it I favorite like, I, I like that everyone's movie, favorite soderbergh yeah i think it's underrated too <laughs> yeah but you, what about you keith what do you like i've been watching a bunch of westerns for a piece i'm writing and so you know i could have plenty of good things to choose from I'll, I'll, I'll here's here's one that maybe gets the edge for my recommendation just because it just came out on criterion blu-ray it's samuel fuller's 40 guns and i know they're sort of like you know we always had to posture like we've seen every movie ever and i kind of like that there are some great films out there i haven't seen yet i love samuel fuller for some reason i've never gotten around to this one yet what a fantastic western it is um it, it stars uh barry sullivan as as sort of a gunslinger turned lawman who has to seek out some killers uh, and he comes to a part of the country that's kind of run by the imperious local land owner played by uh, Barbara Stanwyck, who's who's amazing in it as sort of this this you know female boss who who bosses the uh, the forty guns of the title who we are introduced riding through the frame one by one uh, and and later seen eating dinner with Barbara Stanwyck at a at a table for forty and it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, Fuller loves to go a little bigger and he loves to you know keep things raw and. And, and just sort of like very like two-fisted poetry of, of his films. And it's all that's here. Uh, there's some really innovative stuff in it, too. There's some close-ups in here that's kind of like, you know, clearly got Sergio Leone thinking about what, how he would make a Western, uh, the same kind of intensity to it that a lot of spaghetti Westerns would pick up on later. There's a shot down the barrel of a gun, uh, which is, you know, pretty much just borrowed shamelessly for the opening credits of uh, James Bond films for years to come and in the end it's you know it, it's, it's exciting but also um, as with a lot of most of Fuller's films there's so much emotion to it it's a, it's a moving film um, I would highly recommend it I'm so sorry it played here 
at the music box, and I missed the screening of it. I and, know, you know I, me too. I'm it's, so it's black and white it. cinemascope, which you know, there's only there's not that many of the, uh, the widescreen black and white films, and it's just a great look for a film if you can get it right, and it's really appropriate. How'd you for, see it, Keith? Uh, Blu-ray. Mm, yeah, nice. it's, it's, like I said, it's out on Criterion. It's a nice Criterion edition, and they have some cool interviews with Fuller's widow and, and daughter, and, and, and there's good stuff on there. Tasha, how about you? Well, a couple of things. Um, one, as we're talking about Netflix and how they how they make their choices and how they're handling their marketing, the best thing I've read about this recently was an article in the Wall Street Journal um, with the headline, At Netflix, Who Wins When It's Hollywood Versus the Algorithm? Mm-hmm. And that is one of the most like insightful and like insidery articles I've read about a lot of things that people are very curious about, about how Netflix is managing its publicity and how it's balancing all of the vast amount of data it's taking from its viewers in terms of how people watch things, how quickly they watch things, how much they watch things, how different people in the household watch things. Uh, The article kind of highlights a head-to-head battle going on between the tech department who is taking in all of this data and saying, you know, based on this, we need to cancel Glow. Based on this, we need to cancel a lot of different shows that people aren't watching. And the Hollywood side, which wants to forge relationships with famous people and seems to be like a little less mechanically numbers driven and a lot more, well, we want to stay in bed with this creator. So can we renew their TV show? And it it gets at the heart of a lot of the art versus commerce debates that happen in every artistic medium. But, you know, here it's happening just very visibly with, with two parts of a company talking to each other about what's important about art for the future of the company. And it's a really insightful and interesting read. Um, as far as Sundance goes, this was, it seems like a good year. And I like, I couldn't, I couldn't speak for the money made specifically by films, but in terms of films getting picked up, Pretty much all of the films that I really enjoyed at Sundance got pretty quickly snapped up by uh, companies like Neon and, and Netflix and Magnolia, and a lot of them are coming to theaters. Most proximately to this particular episode of the podcast coming out, one of them is coming to Netflix called The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. Mm. It's the directorial debut of Chiwetel Ejiofor, uh, a tremendously talented actor in a lot of favorite movies of mine red belt most comes to mind but he's had a a long and successful career and he uh co-scripted and directed this film from a uh autobiography and and the life experiences of uh an african man named william kumquaba William has put out a a book about his experiences. There's also a children's book version of the same story. He appeared in a uh, like a TED talk kind of thing talking about how growing up uh, as a small boy in the Republic of Malawi, which is in Southeast Africa, uh, he was able to build a windmill um, that basically saved his village from drought and from starvation. The story plays out, Ejiofor co-stars in the film as William's father. Um, And it's kind of about his family and his village and the community. And it's an uplift movie. You know, it's it's kind of your standard based on a true story, uh, miserableist, here's how hard life is and, and it's terrible. And then somebody with a, a bright idea who won't let go of his ideals uh, fixes the problem kind of movie. It's very much a feel-good movie. 
but it's just so much richer than those movies normally are. Uh, it really focuses heavily on the community, on all of these like smaller characters in this boy's world, on what it's like to grow up in this environment, um, on what it's like to have to scrape together money to pay for schools because there's no such thing as a, a public school, what it's like to have the harvest to determine whether you get an education that year, whether you get to go on in life or, or get left back. And a whole lot of other things. It's just a, a warm and interesting experience. The acting is tremendous. The ensemble cast is really good. Uh, I think the script is really sharp. Ejiofor is uh, a prominent character, but not the dominant character. It really is about one boy's journey. I think this may be one of those movies that gets kind of overlooked you know, because it's about uh, a true life story of Africa, because it's one of a billion things appearing on Netflix. Mm. And I would really like it to find its audience, which may not be the kind of, you know, audience that we normally appeal more to, you know, the the people who love movies like Nightcrawler that are, you know, dark and, and edgy and rule breaking and hard hitting. This is maybe a softer kind of thing, but it's also it's just a beautifully done movie. And I really liked it a lot. Um, so The Boy That Harnessed the Wind will be on Netflix on March 1st. Did you happen to see Paddleton while you were there? I did not because I knew it was something that we weren't going to cover. But yeah. virtually everybody, also it just it steadfastly refused to line up with my schedule. Yeah. Everybody I talked to loved it. Like, yeah, because it's a February 22nd release on Netflix. So uh, it's very soon, very soon. I'm really looking forward to seeing that just based on... I. I can't out any specific critic who told me they cried through it, but it was uh, most of them. <laughs> yeah. For very different reasons. It's a cancer movie, you know? Yeah, but no apparently it's that. a really well done one that uh, really touched. Scratch a, a critic, you'll find a cynic. Uh, but all of these like cynical, hard-bitten, roll-your-eyes-at-emotions uh, critics oh, were telling me at Sundance, yeah, I cried. They all love it. They're just putting on a pose. <laughs> they are pushing the bound. The what are they doing with the media? The the form. They they are they are uh, furthering the realm with furthering their the analysis. realm. Yes, furthering the realm. Furthering the realm with their tears. And that's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. Our next pair will come out March fifth and twelfth. Wait a minute, is that Genevieve Kosky coming in just to tell us what movies we're doing next? Hi. Let me give you a little sneak peek behind the scenes here at the Next Picture Show. Sometimes we don't know what pairing we're going to do next until after we've recorded an episode. So we end up deciding later and, through the magic of editing, hello, make it sound like it was done in continuity with the rest of the show. Amazing, right? Yeah, you've never noticed before, I'm sure. On your Next Picture Show, you just heard Scott recommend High Flying Birds, Steven Soderbergh's Netflix movie about a sports agent who tries to plot his way around a basketball lockout. After discussing other possibilities, we decided to indulge Scott's obsessions with movies and sports ball by having him host a hoops pairing. Hoops, am I pronouncing that right? Over the next two episodes, we'll be talking about two movies about players who improvise outside the professional game. First, we'll spot up for a discussion of White Men Can't Jump, Ron Shelton's follow-up to Bull Durham, starring Wesley Snipes and Woody Harrelson as trash-talking Venice Beach hustlers who team up to work the local courts for cash. Then we'll take it to the rack with High Flying Bird, Soderbergh's new film about an agent's attempt to wrest control away from ownership. Can we make it through two episodes without getting bogged down in basketball metaphors? We'll give it a shot. Thank you, Genevieve. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of A Bucket of Blood, Velvet Buzzsaw, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. 
You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott. Uh, well, you can find me on Twitter. It's at Scott underscore Tobias. And uh, you can find my work in the uh, New York Times, NPR, Vulture, uh, other places like that. Uh, uh, Washington Post occasionally. I haven't done anything for them in a, a bit, but I've got something coming up. So, And I'm the editor-in-chief of the uh, Musings blog at uh, Oscilloscope. Um, Tasha? I am the film and TV editor at TheVerge.com. You can see my writing there. You can see the writing of many talented people that I uh, get involved in writing things for me, like one Keith Phipps, who recently reviewed High Flying Bird for me. And you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Keith? You can find me on Twitter at KPhipps3000. You can find my writing, oh gosh, all over the place at The Verge, at uh, Vulture, at, um, you know, Polygon, at well, the Mel, Mel Magazine, The Ringer. I haven't been The Ringer in a while, but I, I got to I gotta pitch them some more. Um, Rolling Stone occasionally. You got to pitch them too. All these, you know what? It's a good reminder. I need to, to, to pitch some more <laughs> publications, yeah. do, some, do some actual writing. Jennifer Koski, our, our contributor and producer who is not here this week, you can find her on Twitter at, at Genevieve Koski. You can find her at Vulture, where she works as the assistant TV editor. And you should definitely check that out. As for this podcast, you can stay updated on the Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at, at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and to keep the show going. Uh, thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for producing this podcast. And he was here in the studio with us tonight, which was delightful. Uh, the Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting Family of Podcasts. Please tune in next time. I don't have to move.